starting today and, and going through Easter, but also going after Easter, we're going to be preaching through the book of Exodus. And for those of you who don't know, uh, Jean, I don't know if she's here, she's, you guys know Jean, um, many of you have been blessed by her writing and her devotions. And so last year, she put that into this book called Come Alive, which is a devotional journey through the book of Acts and the Exodus. And if you haven't been blessed by her writing, you need to be blessed by her writing. All right, she, for those of you who don't know, I mean, she's studying Hebrew right now. She's studying Old Testament stuff. So she really packs a punch. And um, just for the duration of this time, both her book and my book, which is nothing to do with Exodus, but all those difficult questions that we wrestle with and even that non-believers wrestle with, just to equip you, both of our books are going to be available for a hundred bucks um, during the course of the series. So please get hold of one of these. You will be blessed by it. So... Today, as you can see, in case you didn't know, we're heading into Easter week and today is Palm Sunday. And as Bianca has already mentioned, traditionally we're thinking about Jesus coming in to Jerusalem and, and the crowds are waiting there. They're laying down their cloaks. They are waving these palm branches and they're shouting Hosanna, which means God save us. So they're crying to Jesus God save us. They're also crying out, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Recognizing that Jesus is the prophesied King who comes in the name of the Old Testament God, Yahweh, and Jesus is the embodiment of Him. And now on one hand, they were expecting Jesus to come in and overthrow their physical enemies which at this point in time was the, the brutal, oppressive nation of Rome over the people of Israel at that time. But what they didn't know then, but we know now, is that Jesus as the true King was coming to overthrow our greatest enemies, the enemies of death, the enemies of sin and hell. And on the cross, and through Jesus' resurrection, Jesus was going to defeat our greatest enemies as our King to give us life. And so as we go into Easter week, we celebrate that as kind of the center point of our faith. But if we look at the Jewish Scriptures, the Old Testament, there's kind of a, a center of gravity there as well. Also a story about God as King. Also a story about God coming in and releasing His people from oppression, releasing His people from slavery and into freedom. And that story many of us know is the, the story of Exodus and the story of the Passover. And what the New Testament writers do for us is they say, this story is the same as this story. In fact, the story of the cross is the ultimate fulfillment of the story of Exodus and the story of the Passover. And so for that reason, we are going to be entering this Easter season, this week heading up to Easter by hanging out in the book of Exodus and allowing this story to get our hearts ready for the ultimate story of Jesus Christ. Because these are the one and the same God doing one and the same thing. But it becomes most real for us 
in Jesus and his death on the cross and resurrection from the dead. Now, there's another reason that we're going to be spending our time here because when I talk about Exodus, I want to ask you, what are the kinds of images that come to mind? And so maybe some of you are old enough to have watched the old Charlton Heston movie, The Ten Commandments, Let My People Go. Maybe some of you are more familiar with the animated version, The the Prince of Egypt. Or maybe some of you are more thinking about just being in Sunday school or seeing many of the paintings or the pictures depicting what went on in the Exodus And I'd venture to say that the the greatest images that come to mind are probably the images of the sea parting before Moses and God's people and probably the images of the plagues. And that actually is why we're going to be spending some time here because unfortunately we as planet Earth have been quite familiar with this idea of a plague where a single disease has quite literally taken over planet earth and has left many people grieving, whether it be people loss or financial loss. It just feels like countries are in disarray politically and economically as a result. And and while God did bring the plagues in the book of Exodus, I'm not necessarily claiming that God brought this plague, but we want to try and identify with what is going on here And so to maybe just become more familiar with the story, I want to catch us up so that we can dive straight in and we're not going to spend too much time to the introductory chapters of of Exodus. But just so that we're on the same page, the book comes straight out of the end of Genesis. And what kind of where the book of Genesis ended was that God's people who were numbered about 70 plus because of a devastating famine in the Middle East had made their way down to Egypt They were given fertile land and they were able just to settle down and farm and develop themselves. And they had children and then their children had children and then their children had children. All coming under the patriarch Jacob who was renamed Israel. And so they became known as the Israelites. And they became a great nation in the nation of of Egypt. The problem was Pharaohs came and went and then there was a Pharaoh who never knew Jacob, who never knew Israel, who never knew Joseph. And he looked upon these people and and these immigrants who were using up so many of their resources and he became such a threat to his own people that he said this, and I'm gonna read Exodus 1 verses 9 to 11. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. And so they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. But despite, we read on, despite Pharaoh making them slaves, they continued to multiply. And obviously they became a bigger threat to Pharaoh. So he decided to get more drastic. He went to all the the Hebrew midwives and it seems like the biggest problem here was that the Israelites were having many, many children. So he said, I know what we're gonna do. Hebrew midwives, if there's a little girl that's born, I want you to let her live. 
But if a little boy is born, I want you to kill him. Now that must have been devastating to hear. And so these Hebrew midwives had to face a choice. And they decided to trust God and let all the babies live. So Hebrew went, uh, Pharaoh went up to them and said, what's going on? I gave you a command and, and they were kind of shrewd in this and they said back to Pharaoh, listen, these Israelite ladies, they're just so good at giving birth. By the time we get there, the job's done and so there's nothing we can do about it. So then Pharaoh said, okay, that's fine. I'm now going to take matters into my own hands. And so then instead of telling the Hebrew midwives, he told his people, all baby boys are want to be killed and thrown into the river. And most of us are maybe familiar with that part of the story, but I want you to bookmark that in your minds. Because I never realized as we get to the rest of the story, how much those particular scenes played a role in what God did in Egypt in this time. This is genocide. This is war crimes of the highest degree. But then there was one mom in the, if there were some cameras, they would have focused in on this one little family. She had a little baby boy and like all moms, she wanted to spare his life. And so she put him in a, in a reed basket covered in pitch and tar, just Bible geek trivia. The word for that little basket covered in pitch is exactly the same word for the ark that God brings deliverance through. So just let that be something cool to think about. Anyway, so here's this little boy and he floats downstream. Pharaoh's daughter herself is bathing and she sees this little boy has pity on him. She wants to raise him up in Pharaoh's household, but she says, look, I need some help. I need, I need a, a Hebrew lady to help me. The first lady she sees happens to be Moses' mother. And so Moses is raised up in the household of Pharaoh. Of course, he's educated in ways that none of his fellow people were educated. He, he was brought up in the ways of Egypt, the ways of nobility. But at some point, we don't know exactly how much later, but as an adult, he's looking over the Israelite people and he realizes that they are his people. And he sees how they are treated by the Egyptians. And he's angry. Short time later, he sees a, a slaver beating up a Hebrew slave. Moses decides to do something about it. And with this anger, he goes up and he actually deals, you know, like the boys in the south of Johannesburg, he deals with this guy. Maybe goes a bit far because he leaves him dead. I hope that's not always how the boys in the south of Johannesburg deal with things, but anyway. The word spreads and suddenly Moses realizes, I, I can't be here anymore. And so he flees into the deserts and a whole lot of wonderful stuff happens out there, but he flees into the deserts where he spends 40 years of his life as a shepherd. But then there's this moment, again, one of these story moments that we've, many of us have grown up with in Sunday school. But he's herding his sheep and he's on a mountain which later becomes known as Mount Sinai or the mountain of the Lord. And he sees this bush burning and it wasn't too uncommon. This is the desert after all. But instead of being burnt up like our brides will later on, 
he realizes, no, this is a different kind of a fire. He goes and he tries to check this out and God calls out to him. He realizes he's on holy ground. And one of the things that God says to him is this, Exodus 3 verses 10, God says, so now Moses, go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And I can imagine Moses saying, what? Me? If I go back, they're going to kill me. That's like if you weren't popular in the high school, that's like being called to go back to your high school. You're like, I'm the last person people want to be saving them. And then Moses has all of these excuses and one of his questions is, listen, if I walk into Pharaoh's uh, household and I say that this is what's going to happen, who should I even say is sending me? And this is such an important part of the story because God replies in verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am, which in Hebrew is one word, Yahweh. That is his name. God is revealing His personal name to Moses. I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, when you see the Lord in capital letters, that is once again the word Yahweh, the Lord Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name, Forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. This incredible moment of the revelation of God's name. Now, for all of us, one of the most precious words to us is the sound of our name. All of our names were chosen by our parents for a reason, filled with hope and blessing and promise. For those of you who heard my dad preaching a number of weeks ago, he mentioned that my name comes from the Greek word Stephanos, which is the word crown. I don't know what your names mean, but as meaningful as our names are to us, in this period of time, names carried even more weight. They literally defined who you were. Your name was your reputation. And so God is saying, do you want to know who I am? Listen to my name. My name is, I am. Think about that. Who is God? I am. Does God exist? I am. But there, but there are so many other gods out there. Don't worry, I am. But not only is God's name a revelation of who He is, it is an invitation into relationship. You see, in our English language, we kind of had the general word God, capital G God or little g God, which could mean any number of gods out there. The same is true in Greek and Hebrew. And so God says, I don't only want to be known in these general terms. Those other words are more like a title. It's like me walking up to you. And instead of saying, hey, Tristan, I say, hello, human. That could be anyone, but there's only one Tristan Wallace. And God is saying by you knowing my name, 
You are now in relationship with me. So now we're going to fast forward and we're going to get to Exodus chapter 5 and I want to read the first two verses here. whole lot happens, but Moses and his brother Aaron are now, they're standing in front of Pharaoh in obedience to this call from God. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel says, let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. And Pharaoh said, Who is this Yahweh that I should obey Him and let Israel go? I do not know this Yahweh and I will not let Israel go. Remember what he's saying there. Pharaoh is insulted by this request. And so what he does is he amps up the violence. He amps up the oppression. He makes it even harder and more painful for the Israelites as the slave nation. And so what they do is they say to Moses, listen, Moses, we were better off without you. We don't need you. Won't you go try your leadership somewhere else? Welcome to Leadership 101. (laughs) Moses goes and complains to God saying, what position have you put me in here? And then listen what happens in Exodus 7 verses 1 to 5. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I've made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. We're just going to step around that rabbit hole there. Wish I had time for that. And though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. And then I will lay my hand on Egypt and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring about my divisions, my people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. They will know my name. They will know my reputation. They will know who I am when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. And that brings us to this famous series of scenes that we kind of call the 10 plagues. Now, I'm going to ask you just to give me some grace here because I just want to geek out theologically a little bit. And I hope that you find this as exciting as I do. But now, we're not going to go through each of the plagues. We will mention a couple of them as we go. But in our English language, we've got the word plague which technically actually refers to a disease. Now, out of the 10 plagues in Exodus, only one of them was a disease. But if you look at the Hebrew word behind the word that we've translated plague, it is often translated as a hard blow or a death blow or a strike. I love this idea, 10 strikes against Egypt. I know know some of you have maybe seen some of those MMA movies or these karate movies. And sometimes there's just a moment where the guy wins and he gets into his stride and it's like to the front, left, right hook. I don't have the right language. I don't know what I'm talking about, but you get the picture. But it's blow after blow after blow and eventually the final blow, the final strike. That's what God is doing here. You know, some people, 
complain. And with our modern sensibilities, hearing this with kind of modern ears, they say, shame, man. Poor Egypt. Couldn't God have done something a little bit more PC? Couldn't He have sat down and negotiated? Couldn't He have done things differently? Why bring all of this violence? Remember, God is revealing His character. He wants them to know His name. This is who I am. And this is what I do. Kind of reminds me of, uh, I've mentioned a number of times here, one of our favourite Christmas movies is the movie Elf with Will Ferrell. And if you know Will Ferrell, he's got kind of a very silly comedic style. So it's a light-hearted comedy. But what this one guy has done, he's done it with a number of movies. He's done it with uh, Mary Poppins as well. But uh, he takes like a couple of scenes from the movie Elf, maybe a bit of a stern look, a bit of a scene where maybe Elf was in trouble with his father. He puts a, a dark border around so it looks all dark and moody and he puts some scary music behind it and he creates a three-minute trailer for the movie Elf that makes it look like a horror movie. And it's really so convincing. And I think sometimes when it comes to stories like this, we can do that with God. We pull out maybe some true things, but we reinterpret them. We add our own feelings about them. We don't put them into context and we can make God look out to be a monster. If we really want to know what the movie is like, we've got to watch the whole movie. And then we're going to know, oh, that's what he's like. Oh, that's what's really going on. And in the same way, there are some true acts of justice and judgment that God is bringing about here. But there's also a greater picture of who God is, what he is like. And so we need to understand that. We've also got to remember that not only has Pharaoh been enslaving these people, treating them with violence, but he took out a whole generation of male baby boys. Right now, our news headlines are filled with violence. I was reading a story the other day about a town in the Ukraine where the army came in and not only massacred over 200 people, but took some of those children as human shields on their tanks. Killed some of the men in front of their wives and children. And you can only imagine what they did to the wives. And so oftentimes in moments like that, people say, where is God? Well, here is a story where God did intervene. Where God did confront the evil and the injustice. Holding Pharaoh accountable for his actions. There's also a number of other interesting things going on with these plagues. I know maybe for some of us, these plagues sound pretty random. Like God had like a pinwheel of plagues and like today throws the darts. It's like, oh, okay, frogs, frogs today. There's something a bit more deliberate going on here. See, Egypt, like many other ancient civilizations, had a whole host of deities and gods. And each of these gods had kind of a sphere of responsibility. And we're going to spend a bit more time on this, but listen to Exodus 12 verses 12, where God says, this is after the story, I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am Yahweh. 
Numbers 33 verse 4, looking backwards, says this, they marched out boldly in full view of all the Egyptians who were burying all their firstborn, which is the final plague we'll deal with on Good Friday, whom the Lord had struck down among them, for the Lord had brought judgments on their gods. And when we look at the plagues, we see that God is systematically confronting and disempowering the gods of Egypt. Let me give you some examples. Egypt, as you know, is in the deserts. And so the Nile was their lifeline and their entire economy was built on this Nile. And so in the Egyptian imagination, the Nile was in a sense, a bit of an incarnation of one of their gods. And so the first plague is God taking what is their source of life and by turning it to blood, making it a source of death. Not only is it a reflection of, listen, this river became a source of death to my people. Now it's a source of death to your people. But he was confronting the Egyptian God, happy, who wasn't feeling very happy at the time. Sorry, dad joke. Here's another one. One of the main goddesses of Egypt was the spouse or the wife of their creator God. And she had the body of a, of a woman and the head of a frog. And so when God sends the plague of frogs, He's laughing at her saying, you think you've got control? You think you're God? And He's confronting God after God after God, a direct assault against them. And so here's the situation where Pharaoh and Egypt represent the height of human and spiritual evil. And God is confronting both. To reveal something about who He is. But there's another layer to this. Egyptians had a concept called ma'at, which was basically the word that they used for their cosmic sense of order, how things ought to be maintained. Now Pharaoh for them, was an incarnation of their God, Horus. And part of Pharaoh's divine responsibility was to maintain Ma'at. And so by God unleashing these plagues, he's confronting their gods and he is laughing in the face of Pharaoh saying, you think you've got control over the natural world? You think you can maintain my art? You think you are a divine presence here? I am the Lord. Another layer to this is, is some of the plagues were a direct assault against not just specific gods, but against the uh, Egyptian religion in general. For example, the, the, the gnats and the flies all over the people would have rendered the priests unclean, which meant they could not go into their temples and appease their gods. And then when they had their boils, they would have been physically incapacitated. And so you can just see the God of Israel coming against their religion, coming against this divine sense that Pharaoh has and the sense that he has any control over the natural world and coming against their gods in judgments. The last little interesting thing here I want to point to, we know that there's 10 plagues, but there's a very interesting literary structure given to them. And so the way they set up in a literary format 
is in three sets of three in parallel and then the final tenth. And if we look at just how these plagues are set out, we see there's something in common with plagues one, four, and seven, and then the second in the triad, and then the third in the triad. What links the first three together is that they all happen with Moses meeting Pharaoh at the banks of the Nile. Remember, this is where all these Hebrew babies were killed. This is where Moses almost lost his life. This is the place of death, which became a place of death to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. What is also common about these first three uh, series of plagues is this phrase shows up in all of these plagues, so that you will know that I am the Lord. The second in each of these triads all take place with Moses in Pharaoh's house, demanding that he release God's people. And then the third of each of these plagues come without warning. It's almost as if God is just turning up the volume in judgments against Egypt and Pharaoh. This, this phrase, so that you will know that I am the Lord, occurs seven times in the story. And especially in the Old Testament, whenever you see anything that happens in the group of seven, you need to stop and take notice. Because that is a picture of God's presence, of God's power, of God's completeness. And so by this showing up seven times, this is just double clicking, highlighting, circling, underlining, saying, I am the Lord. I am the I am. And I want everyone to know it. Egyptians, Pharaoh, my people, and here we still are recognizing who God is. And that is what we are going to be doing this Easter week. Recognizing who God is. Because the question is, who is God? What is He like? Which is a question maybe some of us ask in tough times. And maybe some of people in our, in our families are asking as we live in such a confusing world at the moment. Now very often in a sermon, Craig and I just want to, Make you, maybe make it practical for you. And here's three things you can go home and do. Here's four alliterated points so you can remember them. Today, all I want to do is leave an impression with you. And that is this, that just like God in the Exodus revealed who He was, so Easter reveals who God is. If we're saying who is God? What is He like? We look at His name and we look at His deeds which are consistent with His name. The name of Jesus in Hebrew is Yeshua, which literally means God saves. That's who Jesus is. In fact, in the story in Exodus, when it comes to these very many words which, which are used to describe God's saving work here, one of the words... One of the verbs literally is Yeshua, God is saving. There are so many points of connection between God's kingly saving power here and God's kingly saving power in Jesus in, in the gospel. So we can either look at the God of the Exodus, 
where He says, this is who I am. This is my character. This is my nature. And what I do is a reflection of who I am. So in the same way, we can look at Jesus. He too is the God who saves. He too is the God who confronts evil. He too is the God who does not leave us to wallow in our sin. He hears our cries. He hears our pain. He puts on flesh and blood to enter our painful world. Not only does He know what it painfully means to be human like you and I do, but He took on the sins of every human being that has ever lived. Our King. And so as we think back 2,000 years ago, people shouting, God save us. People shouting, blessed, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. I'm just hoping that phrase is blowing up in your mind. We can look at Jesus, the King of all kings, who does save us. And He does reveal the name of the Lord to us. So this coming Easter week, by the way, our Tenebrae service is gonna be made available to all. And even if you just wanna do it in your family, please do join up with someone, join up with one of our life groups, maybe join up with another family, but it will be available to you. But as we go through Easter week, please don't just go through the motions. Please don't simply see that we're celebrating something that happened in history 2,000 years ago. While that is partly true, we are still celebrating the same Jesus who still lives. The same Jesus who is still, by definition, the same God who saves. The same King, the exalted King, the King above the Pharaohs of this world, the King who defeated the evil of this world and took the sin of the world upon His shoulders. The King who defeated death on our behalf and offers us His life. Today, I really pray with everything that is in me that this Easter, the eyes of our hearts see Jesus and with more clarity, see His glory and His power and His victory, all that is meant by His name, his reputation, his fame, his character, his saving power. And how near he is to you in your time of need. And how great he is to be near to you in your time of need. Let us pray. Father, you have revealed yourself in so many wonderful ways. And some of these stories can maybe run the risk of falling into cliche. God, I pray that as we enter this story in this book of Exodus, I pray too that as we look at very familiar stories in the Old Testament, I pray as we enter this this week which feels so familiar to many of us, a story that we know about your journey to the cross and your resurrection. God, let this become so real to us. 
I pray that Your majesty and Your power and Your authority would explode in our hearts and mind. I pray that Your saving power would be so majestic to us and that Jesus, Your saving power would be so real and personal to us. Because not only did You save then, You save now. I get to know You I get to call you by name. You call me by name. And as crazy as this sounds with a majestic, glorious God, you call me son, you call me daughter, you call me friend. But you made that possible by you bridging the gap between an almighty God and, and me, a frail sinner, so God, journey with us in this week. Holy Spirit, day on day, give us greater insights, a greater knowledge, a greater understanding, even a greater experience of you, the living God who saves. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Yeshua, the God who saves the one who comes in the name of the Lord, our King. And all God's people said, Amen, Amen.